0: Welcome to episode 11 of Learn Me Right, with Professor Scott Kitchener. We're very, very lucky to have Scott here to talk to us today about quarantine. Can we just start, Scott, by you telling us a little bit about your expertise and background?
1: So uh, I'm a uh, public health physician and medical administrator by trade. are um, specialties that I completed after doing general practice uh, as a, my first specialty uh, when I was in the military. Um, so at the moment, my expertise is um, working in uh, medical administration, but I am also responsible for public health medicine uh, and research in an area within Queensland, a region.
2: Beautiful. Thank you. Um, now, before we get into the substantive part of the podcast, I have some rapid fire questions for you. A highlight of the year.
1: So in the last 12 months, I've, it's been a wonderful year. We had our 30th wedding anniversary and my eldest son got married to a wonderful young woman.
2: Wow, beautiful. I love Excellent that. Um, so a little bit, you know, less uh, sentimental coffee order.
1: Um, uh, un, un cappuccino per favore. <laughs> I
2: don't even know what language that is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to cut that. <laughs> um, and what song would you sing at karaoke?
1: Oh uh, Look, I gave this a lot of thought um, and I thought back. It's it's almost um, invariably been you've lost that loving feeling because it's probably the only thing I can come close to um,
2: Oh, you're kidding. You're
1: so young. <laughs> I don't
2: think
0: I know it either. I have to confess. <laughs> um,
1: so imagine Mav and Goose in the bar and… Oh,
0: Top Gun. Yeah, yes. And,
1: and um, Mav said, I think she's lost that loving feeling. And Goose says, I really hate it when she loses that loving feeling. Okay. So my wife and I met in the Navy when oh. I was at the Naval Aviation Centre. And um, so, yeah. Sentimental
0: value. <laughs> <laughs> Thank okay. you very much. So, our first substantive question is What is your current research area and sort of topic of interest that you're investigating?
1: Uh, so, my current research at QUT uh, is involved in looking at the legal context of quarantine uh, within the uh, Queensland response to COVID 19. Brilliant.
0: And in terms of what specifically you're looking at, can you tell us a little bit more about how? that has evolved, because obviously quarantine has been very topical the last few years. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and it's been topical the last couple of years because we really haven't used it for it's a, it. For a public health physician, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. You know, the last time we seriously used quarantine was almost 100 years ago. So um, it's it is a it is a once in a lifetime opportunity to research. Um, particularly what I'm doing is an expanded legal critique. Uh, which essentially is is doing a standard legal critique with an additional perspective to analyse the problem, and the additional perspective I'm using is epidemiology, being a public health physician. Oh,
2: so uh, my question is: if quarantine is a uh, once in a lifetime, <clears throat> once in a hundred year uh, act or action, so where did it come from in Queensland or specifically Australia, and how did it how did it come to be so commonly used during COVID? Well,
1: it's a uh, you're probably fully aware that this is the 600th anniversary of the Venetians' first using quarantine uh,
2: yes. in 1423. <laughs> That's what my calendar told
1: me today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so get thee to Venice. But
2: okay.
1: essentially, um, 600 years ago, um, ships were arriving at the lagoon with the Black Death. And so uh, really erudite thinkers considered ways that they could prevent this happening. And one of the ways that was, was developed was to quarantine ships. Now, quarantine is different to isolation in that isolation is pretty straightforward um, from um, a medical and an ethical point of view in that someone's sick, we suspect they're sick with a disease that's potentially infectious We want to stop the transmission. It's very clear that they're going to transmit the disease because they floridly have it. So we'll isolate them. Quarantine on the other hand is a little more nuanced in that essentially you are requiring um, people to be detained to lose their liberty because we think they may develop the disease because we think they've been exposed to the disease and they may have it and just not yet developed it. So quarantine is a lot more nuanced and a lot more ethically um, charged, I think, um, and and for the Venetians, it was a pretty easy thing. They they decided that well, ships coming from, um, particularly, it was called the Levant, so um, the Middle East, um, were uh, highly likely to have um, people who had been exposed to the pestis, the Black Death, um, or at least we think it was that, because obviously it hadn't um, Alexander uh, Yersin hadn't actually identified the bug yet, um, but they essentially said, well, look, if, you, if we think you are coming from those areas, and we think you may have been exposed, so you are required to be um, walled off and kept away from everybody else for 30 days. And then they went, well, that's actually not long enough. So um, we'll do it for 40 days. Quaranto, which is where we get the word quarantine. Ah, That makes sense. You've
2: actually really well explained the difference between isolation and quarantine. So it's, it's an essential I... feature. I personally thought isolation was just, oh, I have it. I'll do it at home, but I haven't been directed to, (laughs) whereas I thought quarantine was you're being mandated to go somewhere. I I have gotten through the past, what, three years? (laughs) So you were, you were
1: being mandated um, and potentially it was also compulsory. And the the, um, ethical issue between Well, when we move into discussing the different forms of quarantine that that were utilised in Queensland, particularly there was quarantine of international arrivals, which is fairly um, common. Um, The quarantine of people who were interstate arrivals uh, up until the middle of December 2021. um, But then there was also commonly quarantine of close contacts. But if you think about where they were all required to go, um, close contacts were permitted to quarantine at home, assuming they had an, an appropriate um, premises, or at least they told the public health officer that they had an appropriate premises. Um, whereas the others were were required to go into public uh, government nominated premises. So the difference in in those two requirements is is really quite significant, in that. ..being told to go into government nominated premises is is a whole lot more difficult Mm -hmm. and less pleasant Mm -hmm. than it is to be able to quarantine at home. And yet the risk of a close contact um, having to to develop COVID-19 was probably higher than the risk of somebody who is an interstate or international arrival. Yet those people with a lower risk were asked to undertake a more arduous quarantine. So there's mm-hmm. a there's a discrepancy there, um, which, you know, I think we, we did for the purposes of what was logistically feasible, given the numbers of people. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a consideration that and, you know, the reason for doing these these sorts of researchers is is really to to learn lessons. To think, well, how, next time it may not be another lifetime before we use quarantine again, and I suspect it won't because of the evolution of um, of infectious disease, particularly and the rate with which you can move around mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we probably be doing this again, mm-hmm. so it's really important, I think, to consider. Well, what do we do well? What could we have done better? How could we do it better? And and that's really one of the reasons why I think QUT have supported me to to look at this.
0: I have a, a question. You mentioned that about a hundred years ago. I'm guessing that was Spanish influenza. Correct me if I'm wrong.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we did, I mean, technically it's a little less. I, I okay. guess the last time we seriously quarantined a large number of people, um, I, I mentioned that I was in the military. Yeah. I was involved in in um, moving some of the dengue cases back from Timor, sure. um, which brought up some of the, and I was working with a unit, I was posted to a unit called the Army Malaria Institute, which is a very famous, um, unit within the Australian Army uh, that comes from the um, uh, from the, um, uh, a unit that existed during World War Two and raised because Australia was uh, had dengue and, and was receptive to malaria. And, and yet we're bring all these people back from New Guinea. One of the things that was really cleverly done was to bring people back from New Guinea and move them up to the Atherton tablelands. And that was that was really a, f- a form of quarantine because the vector for malaria is um, the Anopheles mosquito doesn't fly as high as the uh, Atherton Tableland. So you could bring these people safely back mm-hmm. into an area where the mosquito wasn't. If they were going to develop malaria, they developed malaria, we managed it, but it didn't actually put the rest of Australia at risk of of transmitting malaria. Mm-hmm. So I guess that was really a formal quarantine. But otherwise, yes, we were using it fairly extensively in response to the last, you know, a really big global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, of respiratory disease um, bearing in mind, and I think people forget that we are in the group of other pandemics, and particularly um, HIV is a, is a pandemic that's still evolving. Um, uh, but it's not a respiratory pandemic, which tends to evolve much more rapidly.
2: Mm. With. That in mind, um, we were wondering what your current research is showing about, has Australia in particular balanced the quarantine um, ethical considerations well? What have you found?
1: Well, I I think people would generally say Australia has done well, but then if you go to almost any country, they'll go, oh, yeah, we did really well. (laughs) uh, I, I think you need to be objective. Yeah. Um, so how do you be objective about whether or not the approach we took, uh, the legal framework that we constructed, um, did it work? And I think that's where people would naturally, at least maybe I'm a bit biased because I'm a public health physician, but you know, I think a lot of people go to the um, the epidemiology of the disease as a, a de facto indicator of the justification and how well we did. And I, those two things are slightly different. Um, and, and it's probably more contentious to discuss the justification for the interventions, which I think cuts to the ethics of it. You know, was it reasonable to do what we did in terms of the legal framework for the outcomes that we achieved? Uh, and, you know, I met a lot of people who um, didn't think it was justifiable, but I met many, many more people who were delighted with, with the way we went. Um, and then I think it's even more interesting to not just look internationally in terms of comparisons, but to look at, um, Domestically, you know, did Queensland um, do better than New South Wales? I think, I mean, naturally every Queenslander would say yes. (laughs) um, But realistically, I think we did. I mean, if you look at the number of deaths, uh, particularly during the time when we were really implementing significant public health interventions, um, legally um, based public health interventions, then our legal context was pretty good um, because New South Wales did um, lose control and that to a degree that forced the hand of Queensland and and, um, and other states. Uh, so I guess um, if you are evaluating the legal context, the legal framework that we implemented, um, my summary statement would be that I think we did pretty well um, until we didn't and we started to get a significant increase in the number of deaths and hospitalizations. Um, but that in itself gives us the opportunity to Uh, determine how well what we had done before was and, uh, you know, it's very easy for me to sit here and say, well, look, we should obviously keep going with quarantine and and keep the hospitalizations down to free up the hospitals for people who, you know, have heart attacks and pneumonia and need new hips and so on. But the reality is it's a balancing act. Uh, And um, uh, I don't think that you can keep quarantine going forever. Uh, Essentially, our approach. In a nutshell, when I explain it to other people was that we used quarantine probably as one of our primary uh, public health interventions and it was a legally based intervention, along with other other aspects of social distancing and so forth. Until we got to a point that we felt that we could rest on some other public health intervention that was a a lesser ask of people that that didn't compromise their their liberty and their autonomy um, to such an extent, Um, and that was um, when we got to a certain level of vaccination. So that transition, um, I think in itself is, a, is another piece of work that needs to be researched to determine was that an appropriate path. My research specifically looks at um, was quarantine justifiable, effective? Um, and so to that end, I've, um, I've tried to find ways that you could objectively consider um, the legal context in a legal critique. Um, and then, look at the epidemiological evidence and determine whether or not it was effective or not.
0: I guess one comment, I suppose, is that it's so hard when the situation is evolving all the time, even with all the expertise that you have, making decisions as something is going mm. is really complex. and so I guess with that benefit of hindsight, it's you know a great opportunity to then look back and sort of mm. see how things evolved mm. and lessons for the future. So I suppose one question, our next question is, given these lessons that we've learned and sort of the research that you're currently doing into legal context, do you have any comments on, on what might be a good approach going forward?
1: Uh, yeah, look, and, and these are just opinions, obviously. Um, I think, uh, uh, some of the things that were really interesting about the way we responded was that, uh, The quarantine act had been um in australia since 1908 um, before that obviously because it was a bill before that and and quarantine is the only health power in the constitution of australia um out of that grew the quarantine act but throughout its its life from 1908 to 2015 it was never challenged um, in the high court and so it sort of beetled along um, and evolved and we sort of moved away from using quarantine the quarantine act became uh, a mash of other um, many, many amendments until it was replaced by the, the, at a Commonwealth level by the Biosecurity Act in 2015, which specifically identifies powers that would be um, uh, demonstrably quarantined. We didn't use it. I mean, by and large, we didn't use the quarantine powers of the Biosecurity Act when we were confronted with a pandemic of a respiratory um, disease. Um, and, and that in itself is interesting. It, it then rested upon the states to make um, the uh, response, the public health response at a state level. And it, it's outside the, the, um, the scope of my research, but that interplay of, of um, Commonwealth versus state law, I think is, is a piece of research that should be looked at. Um, in Queensland, we responded rapidly and, and learned very quickly um, about the needs of what our public health act needs to look at and our public health act was relatively recent it was um, it was uh, given royal assent in two thousand and five but it didn't mention quarantine um, in January of two thousand and twenty um, and that's that 's an interesting thing the other the other significant aspect was that it didn't actually give the um, the health minister the ability to um, declare a public health emergency for any longer than seven days before reconsidering it and and going again. And in fact, that's exactly what happened um, uh, at the end of January. Um, the health minister um, at the time um, uh, declared a, a public health emergency for seven days. Um, and then the First Amendment to the Public Health Act was to make that much longer. And in fact, it was changed in the First Amendment um, in, uh, in early February to um, a ninety-day amendment, and that's what was continued uh, uh, up until just recently, um, in I think it was October um, two thousand and twenty-two. The next amendment was sort of recognising that the response, the public health response, necessarily had to be responsive. Um, that this was a rapidly changing um, pandemic, uh, and the reality is that our our legislative process is not that quick. It's safe, but it's not quick. Um, The other thing is it's not always informed um, quickly by technical aspects. And so the need for responsiveness and and technical input um, really was behind the second major amendment. Um, And uh, that second major amendment occurred in March. And that really is what most people would identify as the Chief Health Officer Directives. There are a lot of other aspects to it. But I think what most people would recognise would be the CHO directives. And much of my research is about looking at, well, look, was that justifiable? And um, uh, from a legal critique, you know, was that an appropriate path? And then from an epidemiological perspective, did it work? Mm -hmm. Um, With respect to quarantine, there's over 130 different um, CHO directives. Uh, which I know is not all of the show cho- directives that were made, um, but it's a fairly sizable proportion. And you can see them ebbing and flowing in response to the epidemiology um, that's available. Um, and uh, so uh, looking at them uh, is, is really the basis of my research.
2: I've got one more question. And it's just that we're um, in response to your comment about needing to have technical expertise in, mm. in, in a rapid and fast moving environment where mm. people's lives and health is at stake. And my only response or concern um, from potentially like a, a legal perspective is the fact that a technical response may not necessarily be democratically elected. So there are people, you know, um, having power over our lives that we didn't necessarily mm. appoint or choose ourselves. Mm. However, the reverse side to that would be well, do we want democratically elected people who don't have any experience or technical expertise? Do you have like a, a potential? like a way to balance that in the future, knowing that we have the time and space now to potentially balance those two options? Mm.
1: So I think um, that was that was questioned in late 2020 with respect to a review of the approach. But it's not, it's not new to delegate it's not, legislation to not. public servants. Um, the key feature legally, I'm sure, as well-trained uh, and educated lawyers um,
2: not a lawyer. To, <laughs> Just like, um, not a lawyer. Did not do my PRT, listeners.
1: <laughs> is is to is to um, is to engineer into that uh, uh, the ability for review, um, and typically um, delegated legislation. Uh, and this is somewhat ironic that a doctor is is telling me about <laughs> this uh, um, would be would have parliamentary review. I guess one of the really interesting issues that arose out of this. This um, instrument that was developed, the CHO directives, is that the ability for parliamentary review was pretty limited. In fact, the ability for parliamentary review of the amendments that generated the statutory instrument power um, was very limited because parliamentarians um, were now having to meet um, in the context of um, a respiratory pandemic, um, epidemic locally, um, and um, they needed to make a decision quickly. It, w- it wasn't um, you know, really acceptable for them to ponder this and discuss it for an extended period of time. And I think it, it took a lot of courage to actually pass an amendment that was sweeping um, and and provided this power to a, a non-elected individual. Um, I You know, I think at the end of the day, um, at the end of the year, at the end of the pandemic, it will be judged positively. Um, and I think you know, I, I recall hearing at the time how dangerous it was that Queensland has only one house and this was rushed through. And But I think few people in Queensland would say, well, you know, I'd rather be in Victoria.
2: <laughs> I think
0: so. I think that's probably a <laughs> fair statement to I re- make. <laughs> Yeah, I
2: remember um, my mum lived just, just over the border yeah, and yeah. was she worked, however, in Queensland. So she was mm. drastically affected by the interstate boundaries mm. and all of that sort of stuff. And I remember her getting particularly frustrated at, um, you know, what Quinn was saying about leaving people out and not letting them in. But I was like, I haven't had COVID yet, so I'm not going to win. I think yeah. you know, that was just a self evaluation is that and not only did when I finally get COVID, I a well, fortunately got through it just fine. But, you know, my hospitals and like the you know, local health system was in a state where if I got it poorly, they could cope. I think that was just the most important thing
1: it 's wonderful that you think that we were coping um, <laughs> look, I think most health professionals would say that it was in, it, it still is incredibly difficult mm. but I think everything 's relative yeah. you know if you were in other places I, you know the, we had a number of people come out from the NHS to the health service that I work in, and they were delighted to get out of the NHS yeah. you know it was horrendous. Um, and, and I recall talking to people who were under my responsibility, who were, who were in communication with people in Italy uh, early in yeah. 2020 when, you know, the death rate of intensivists was, was measurable, um, you know, in, incredibly difficult times overseas. So I think by and large, people would say that it went well mm-hmm. um, and that we, um, we responded quickly, or that particularly the parliamentarians responded quickly and delegated um, uh, a, a significant power, but delegated it very well. Um, and then it was, I think it was a very respected power that uh, was was used um, efficiently. And, and realistically, that's that's what my research is showing. I think like everything, we could, have, there's some things we could do better. And it's really easy to be clever with hindsight. Um, uh, so I think uh, we need to judge people fairly in the context of, of yeah. the moment. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is a, these were monumental amendments to, a, to an instrument that hadn't existed before in Queensland in public health yep. um, that was used uh, to, to create impact on just about every Queenslanders life. So yep. um, it's pretty amazing that we came through as we did.
2: Well, with that in mind, our final question is what can the Everyday Queenslander or Australian, whoever is listening on this podcast, <laughs> uh, what can they do to help the situation or what should they know in the you know, ordinary context of debating this in their community and with their family and friends?
1: Yeah, look, I think um, people should appreciate that uh, the, the, the implementation of um, this statutory instrument of um, over 130 um, CHO directives uh, towards quarantine that that caused tens of thousands of people to be quarantined and most of them not to develop um, COVID. Mm-hmm. In reality, um, that occurred because people came along and and complied and I think that in itself is a is a great success and they they need to recognise that because they believed and they followed, um, we did better. So each individual um, needs to recognise that in themselves. They need to recognise that the that the um, the raises, the the reasons that were um, considered, um, in my opinion, were appropriate. So, I have looked at the research along the lines of of um, what would you consider to be an appropriate framework to evaluate this. And and as it turns out, um, after the first SARS um, pandemic, which which only caused like eight hundred um, cases um, uh, in two thousand and three, two thousand and four you know, afterwards, people really considered, well, how do we evaluate how we did doing what we're doing now, really, Mm -hmm. Um, and put forward out of out of um, uh, Georgetown University um, came a framework for considering and evaluating the legal and ethical intervention i 've used that to go, well, okay, it did happen again, how did we go and and when you when you apply those that framework of um, you know was it appropriate to use a precautionary principle, well obviously yes, it was. And I think people need to recognize that a lot of this stuff, particularly quarantine, was done as a precautionary principle, because we didn't know the virus, a novel virus. We didn't have any treatment. We didn't have any vaccine.
2: Mm-hmm. We really
1: didn't know much.
2: We were blind.
1: Yeah. And mm-hmm. particularly, we weren't even sure about the nature of transmission. And that was still being argued um, mm-hmm. a year later. Mm-hmm. So I think it was very appropriate to mm-hmm. use a precautionary principle. I think um, we always try to use the least restrictive um, measure. And, and the reality is that's a that's a major concept in, in a framework for considering public health law. So people need to be aware that we were attempting to use the least restrictive um, intervention. Uh, and that was really behind the move from um, quarantine to, to vaccination. Uh, but there's other examples of it. Initially, we had statewide interventions um, for social distancing and, and uh, we moved away from that around the middle of 2020 when it was evident that really this was a, an epidemic that was really hitting Southeast Queensland and the rural areas had had very limited epidemiology and it really wasn't fair mm-hmm to be implementing a statewide approach. So we actually took a more cordon sanitaire approach um, to Southeast Queensland. And you'll recall that in the outbreaks that occurred um, around September of 2020, we started to identify suburbs and there was a cordon sanitaire put around those suburbs with respect to quarantine requirements and so on. So that was done. As much as possible, I think people try to be transparent. There are a lot of people talking about how we're making decisions and what decisions were being made and, and, and why. And I think that's important. People need to be aware of the sense of fairness and justice and while it was very difficult to, to get through and get an exemption when you wanted or even have an exemption considered, the logistics of thousands and thousands of exemption requests has to be taken into account. So people need to be aware that I think every effort was made mm. to, to be fair and just. Um, you know, we, uh, as we discussed earlier. Um, people who are close contacts were able to um, quarantine at home, and I think that was a really good option for close contacts. But we did require um, interstate and international arrivals to go into um, government nominated premises, particularly hotels. Um, And as much as possible, they, they were attempted to, you know, within the resources to be reasonable environments. But, you know, when you're putting something together that quickly for such a number of people, You know, I don't think we hit the mark all the time. And I recall Mm -hmm. there were issues about were we allowing people enough fresh air and, and, you know, natural light, Mm -hmm. which is reasonable. But I think people need to have the patience to recognise the magnitude of what was being attempted. And um, so they need to be aware of that. Um, And finally, um, in terms of determining whether or not this all worked, um, I've applied um, epidemiology as a razor. And I think you can look, you can use the... um, uh, the contemporary epidemiology of when decisions were being taken and as new CHO directives were coming out. Uh, and you can see that they were made based on really sensible interpretation of the epidemiology. And then if you look at uh, uh, an outcome determinant of, you know, did we use quarantine appropriately? When we removed quarantine in for interstate arrivals uh, just prior to Christmas 2021, uh, we had because we had achieved a certain level of vaccination, and, and the determination was made that we would go to a lesser um, public health intervention of relying upon vaccination, and quarantine was removed. The fact that we had, you know, significant, there were days when we had when we achieved more than 20,000 new cases notified in January of 2022. Um, I think that demonstrates that quarantine was effective, mm. that it was justifiable. Uh, because prior to that Christmas, I think we'd had seven deaths. Um, and, you know, there are days that go past now where we would commonly have seven deaths in a day. Yeah, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, to me, they're very coarse epidemiological um, uh, quotes I've thrown out. But mm. uh, there's a saying in Latin, and I'll probably pronounce it incorrectly, but um, res or loquitur. the data speaks for itself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. On that note, we would just like to thank you very, very much for coming to speak with us about this. It's been amazing to talk to you. Uh, Thank you for your time and expertise.
2: I feel incredibly informed, especially on the distinction between isolation and quarantine, especially considering I'm doing research assistance on those directions about those two things. (laughs) And
0: I feel lucky that unlike the Venetians, we did not have to quarantine for 40 days. So (laughs) that's that's nice.
2: Me copying what you just said, Latin, 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 the data speaks for itself. (laughs) Thanks, Scott.